You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you some things about the home releases that have come out this month. You can think of it as advice if you want, which of course can be a form of nostalgia. But what I'm just telling you is the movies you can get that we think would be good. The list will begin now. (laughs) Joining me is Aaron Forgot to think of a name, Woodle. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I, I did. I like. I made this big stink in one of the last episodes about. Yeah. Oh, next time I'm gonna have a funny geeky name, and it's gonna take you like seven <laughs> episodes to figure out the pattern and why I'm doing it. No, I totally didn't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was doing it just last minute. I didn't realize it was supposed to be hard. Shit. I mean, no. I spent weeks agonizing over it. What? No. It's all good. Anyway, we're here to review movies. Aaron's here to review movies. That's what we do. Kinda. That's all we do. And we will not stop until you know what movies are worth seeing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the Terminator of movie reviewers. That's there. way cooler than us. That's for sure. But let's go ahead and talk about some movies. What do you say? Let's we're here to talk this. about, for instance, Save Yourselves. I was going to say we have a good stack, but yeah, Save Yourselves was an interesting movie. It's kind of the, it's definitely, yeah, let me do a glance. It's definitely the most indie thing we got, uh, the most modern day movie we got, because everything else, I believe, is a re-release. So this is the one new release we have, Um, which, so it's very much a mumblecore comedy science fiction movie about your modern day what Hollywood thinks of millennials uh, mm. going and trying to disconnect from social media because they've realized that basically they're in a rut, you know, and they're not really living with intent, as I like to call it. Um, and so they decide they're going to unplug for an entire week. They make a big show of it online like you do uh, yeah. and then travel out to where there's no phones, no Internet. They shut their phones off. Uh, and the idea is they're they get twitchy about yeah, it. <laughs> they're they're going to reconnect with reality. Um, and unfortunately, while they're gone, it ends up that there is an alien invasion of giant furry balls that like to eat ethanol. Yeah, they they look like pom poms, but with like death tongues, yeah, like 
like basically if um i want to call them fur furbies but that's not right i'm trying to think of from star trek i'm, I'm embarrassed i'm blanking tribbles, tribbles thank you um it's like if tribbles were actually evil yeah well they arguably are although yeah. if you follow star trek it turns out that tribbles the kinds that were from the episode we all know were actually genetically modified to be used as a weapon they weren't originally dangerous until someone made them that way that's retconning things of course but now it is con nerd um <laughs> so yeah the, the movie kind of it has two stories one is what the story is really trying to focus on which is the this relationship as they're trying to transition from young adult to adult and figuring out who they are and realizing that they've been lazy and then the other side is them dealing with this and this alien invasion that is slaughtering people the world over and oh my god massive bad shit is happening and like this sounds like a good movie and it it should be um the cast is talented they're funny uh the story is kind of up my alley i enjoy these small scale looks at what should or what is normally a like really large event uh, you know, I think 10 Cloverfield Lane, but, you know, not scary and horrific. Right. Um, but, but it didn't work I, for you? It didn't. I feel like this movie keeps butting up against two things. One is realistically its budget. And then the story they wrote because of that. Because it, as much as there are cool moments here, the vast majority of this movie is them just kind of at the cabin, not really changing much. And slowly realizing that they were lazy people. Like, nothing really does occur until we get into the final act of the movie. And even then, when it ends, it kind of it kind of just stops. It doesn't really come to a real conclusion for the story. Well, yeah. And so, uh, I, yeah. I was, I was going to say, I think the plot, as it were, the sci-fi part of it, is definitely the thing that concerns this writer the least. He's like, okay, that's just a device to make a movie about our relationship with our devices. You know, he doesn't care what the reason is or what these no. things are, none of that. And he doesn't expect you to either. And I think I had less issues with this once I kind of came to terms with, oh, well, the movie's actually about people having trouble really disconnecting from, the, like, media and who we've become because of that, uh, of our relationship with it. But it, that in such a incredibly non-overt way. I mean, it's there. You always know that's what he's talking about, but most of the comedy is very light. It's very subtle. And in the end, I kind of wished he had just been a little more rough with his audience. Been like, no, you guys need to fucking disconnect. Seriously, what is wrong yeah. with you? And it kind of like the whole thing feels a little wishy-washy. Like, I don't know, maybe. And I'm like, all right, but that doesn't make for a very funny movie. No, I I think you're right. I think he really wants to focus on the relationships. And I think there's a core idea here that really could have worked. I just don't think he knows how to keep that moving. It feels like like we want to focus on the relationship, but we keep making the same points over and over and over again instead of letting them evolve from what they've learned. I, I do want to say, though, the two leads here are delightful. Sunita Mani, who I know best from being on Glow, but was also on Mr. Robot, and John Paul Reynolds, who was in Stranger Things, uh, the Four Weddings and a Funeral miniseries, Search Party, and other things. The two of them are the couple in question, and they are delightful and they've got great chemistry with each other. And I totally would have gone on watching these Agreed. two do stuff, but yeah. it just never really gets in deep enough. It never in its comedy or in its drama to feel anything more than just a, 
you know, a, a whimsical passing thought. Yeah. Honestly, I think every problem this movie has ends up falling back on the script that they could tell or the story that they could tell within their limitations. Like, yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, seven and a half minutes of deleted and extended scenes. There's a actually quite funny six minute blooper reel. And there's an audio commentary with director, writer Houston Fisher and director, writer Eleanor Wilson, who look at various and sundry qualities of the film but you know i mean i do think this is a movie a lot of people liked a lot more than we did so maybe if like the sort of indie comedy thing is more up your alley maybe this will be something that will like really float your boat i mean it's certainly worth a shot i'm not writing this off at all because i don't think it's a bad movie i just think it could have dealt with a little bit more like it, it felt like this is a movie someone makes between other movies yeah i found that i think a I wanted this movie to be better than it was, and I think that might be part of my issue for it. I think that if you're into those quirky indie comedies that are kind of a little more sedate and calm, that are more about just watching the characters be themselves, you'll get a lot more out of this than I did. Like, this is definitely one of those not-for-me kind of things. Well, we're going to go back to 1956 with the first half of our show, by the way, is sci-fi. The second half is westerns. Just worked out that way <laughs> with a brief comedy break in the middle. But we're going back to 1956 in Japan in a tokusatsu film, which literally just means genre film, basically film with special effects called Warning from Space. This was the first Japanese sci-fi film in color. And it was largely not very well liked when it came out in Japan. They didn't really care for it. They said it was too fucking weird and it, but they also said it was too cliched. I'm not sure how you can be both, but it's hard for me to judge either one of those things on that level of not having been there in 1956. But weirdly, almost immediately afterwards, it went on to become a huge influence on Japanese filmmakers and uh, on American filmmakers. Stanley Kubrick called it one of his big influences when he made 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, I can buy that because... The movie, it definitely confused me. When it begins, it feels very much like this is going to be a progenitor to the giant monster movie. And so you set your mind to that kind of rhythm. And then about a third of the way in to maybe half of the way in, they're like, no, 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 never mind. This is an entirely different kind of movie. Uh, We're not really going to have giant monsters rampaging. Instead, this is a classical 50s era we are solving a science fiction problem in a fantastical setting and like they they cram two genres together in a in a weird way and so like it it felt a lot like the the arthur c Clarke story is at childhood's end i think it's childhood's end yeah yeah. well and so like it felt more in line with something like that and it, it took me a while to get that like kind of like the last one how you were mentioning it took you a while to figure out what the movie was so until i realized that i was going this is kind of slow i'm not really vibing with it and once i got into its rhythm of this story of aliens coming to earth to warn uh, earthlings that there is a rogue planetoid coming to strike and will destroy earth (laughs) oh and surprise surprise uh there's actually a mirror planet to earth that rotates on the opposite side of the sun that has this thousands of years in advanced civilization that has existed this entire time that we never knew because they're on the other side of the sun yeah and so like you can see in the picture i pulled up here this is what they look like 
Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of goofiness, and then there's a lot you have to take with a grain of salt because this is an effects film before they knew how to make effect effect films. Yeah, and so like when they do this transformation from one of these star looking aliens into a human, they literally just cut some tubes in front of her with the opacity down on the film and like run them up and down is the super janky original season doctor who effect but like that's that's what they could do at the time and so if you if you can set that aside this is a really interesting fun little uh twilight zone-esque science fiction film i dug it quite a bit actually i mean i knew this was going to be way more up your alley than it was mine you love this japanese 50s science fiction weirdness it's not as much up my alley but i certainly had some level of appreciation for how this probably influenced other stuff you're right there's definitely a twilight zone quality to the story even though the weirdest part and there's a this arrow has both the english version and the japanese version on here and the the relationship of this movie to whether nuclear energy is good or bad is extremely confused. Like on both versions, it's like, okay, nuclear stuff is bad. Okay. And then nuclear energy is what saves the the earth in the end. And you're like, you know, coming extremely strange post right immediately post-World War II Japanese film. You're like, what are you getting at here? Uh, And in the Japanese version, the dialogue has them, the aliens saying to the Japanese, well, we knew you'd get it the most, brother. You know, basically, (laughs) you were the ones to talk to on this planet. I know there's this great part where the Japanese are like, dudes, Earth, believe us, there are aliens and they exist and they're friendly and we're all going to blow up if we don't work together. And everyone's like, nah, we don't believe you. And the Japanese are just going, nobody wants to play with us. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, fortunately, the starfish aliens, they quickly go, oh, well, we've got technology so we can look like humans. And they take like the their their messenger takes the form of a a showgirl, which is a super odd choice. But they're like, I guess that's what humans find attractive. And they like to listen to attractive people. So we'll look like this attractive person. And that's a thing. There's a lot of weird little things like that in here that make it not entirely work, at least by American standards. But I mean, your results are going to vary. If you know, you like Japanese 50s stuff, sci-fi stuff, this is just fine. It's not as bad as the image of the starfish aliens might lead you to believe. Like if you like Dr. Who stuff earlier, Dr. Who stuff, like first couple seasons, you might go, Oh, this is cool. It's kind of inventive and creative, but it obviously feels a little, I don't know, unpolished. It it, it just, imagine a twilight zone movie with the godzilla aesthetic Mm -hmm. and like that's what it is so if you're into that aesthetic you're gonna love this i bet this is up matt frank's alley oh but but if you're not into that yeah this isn't gonna work for you arrow continues its tradition of doing a damn fine job presenting super niche films and there is an insert booklet with a nice supply of essays, stills, cast and crew information, etc. There's select scene commentary by Stuart Gay Galbraith, I think is how you say his name. But uh, it's sure. it's like basically partial. Like it, it just means that in certain scenes he's doing commentary and others he's not. Uh, warning from space, U.S. version basically 
is the same movie except it's slightly different in audio, slightly different scenes. It's large. It's not that different. Um, it's not a huge a bunch of extras here, but there's only so much you can do with a Japanese film in the 1950s that even the Japanese didn't really give a shit about. So <laughs> it is what it is. All right, we'll move on to our next one, which is an American sci-fi horror film that nobody really gave a shit about in in 1989 called Deep Deep Star Six. Having said that, before we continue, I want to give you a fair warning. Mm-hmm. This movie and our next one, I am un- I am incapable of giving a fair assessment of the quality of the movie because I owned both of these on VHS when I was a kid, and I watched these two movies endlessly. Uh. Deep Star Six has the single most iconic movie poster image for me. Like that I've ever experienced. It, it is burned into my brain and will never leave, which is the image of this dive suit that's been bitten in half. And there's like little pieces of it coming out of the bottom. Uh, yeah. Continue, Chris. I'm sorry. No, I'm no. Throw that out there. <laughs> I, 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 the one thing that makes me laugh, because this is in the slew of a bunch of in the wake of everybody having tried to capture the spirit of what made alien and aliens eventually work uh this movie is another one that's trying to do that except in its own way i mean this is one of the later ones 19 being 1989 that was doing it but even so on the cover it says not all aliens come from space i mean come on and and make no mistake (laughs) this is a really b movie gruesome science fiction film and like it, it is prototypical of everything that that entails it is about a corporate fueled effort to install nuclear missile war- launchers at the bottom of the ocean and while trying to make room uh and cutting costs and time and safety measures to keep costs down they accidentally blow up an entrance to an underground cavern that has not been ex- uh, explored in millions of years. <laughs> and lo and behold, the great deep monster that is the crab comes out. And it's like half shark, half crab. And it starts fucking up these people left and right. They're doing the classic alien thing where they're all like roughnecks and people who don't really give a shit about anything, but they're trying to just get their paycheck and make it by. Uh, it's got one of the villains from RoboCop who I should know his name, but I can't think of it right now because I've had too much gin, but he's the guy who smokes Coke off of, uh, Miguel Ferrer. Thank you. Miguel Ferrer, who, who died not that long ago. He died not too long ago. And as much as like he was from all stories that I can hear a pretty great human being. And he's done a lot of really great trashy, uh, character act character moments in movies this may be the movie that i most remember him for unfortunately for him i imagine <laughs> um where he plays this sniveling guy who just fucks up at every turn and gets multiple people killed and like he just keeps trying so hard and it never works this movie is full of great kills it has great effects it's a terrible movie you're probably better off served watching abyss or leviathan yes but i love oh, it i love this leviathan. so much man it's got a crab monster in it and it bites people in half on camera you get to see a guy's chest explode you get to see miguel ferreira literally melt it's an amazing b movie go watch it it's wonderful and now the rebuttal 
me, 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 me. Sibilance, sibilance, sibilance. <laughs> this movie sucks. Oh my God, does it suck. It is so dull. I looked. No one even dies until like 15 minutes from till the end of this movie. Like, like nothing fucking happens in this movie. And I want to say it, that is an aggressively untrue fact. No, it's true, man. Nothing happens. There's like, it's just people bitching at each other and being assholes and the promise that Nia Peoples might have a sex scene. Spoiler, she doesn't. Okay. This is Nia Fair. Peoples when she was like 19, like super Fair. ridiculously hot. It's just dull you don't recognize most of the people in here so it doesn't even the pleasure of like oh it's a young work from you know from a younger version of this recognizable likable guy no not really there's just the monster i'm sorry looks dumb as shit i just started laughing when i saw it i was like really that's the monster and the monster is barely in the film like it literally doesn't appear till the very very end and it's like a cameo by the monster i hate this movie like did it try to be something more interesting than Leviathan, which is just blatantly an alien ripoff? Yes, it did. It did want to be something better than that. Did it achieve a more entertaining movie by trying that? No, it had yes. the opposite effect. It just made it boring as fuck. I dislike this movie significantly. You may keep the Blu-ray of Deep Star Six. Really? And I will. I absolutely will. I love this. Thank you. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> but it is you know it's funny i've i uh usually check for background information on stuff blu-ray.com a site i really like a lot and the critic on this one loves this fucking movie like loves it you should read their review because he's like uh-uh i'm not even apologizing i do not care what he anybody says this movie is fucking amazing and i'm like yeah well it got like four percent on rotten tomatoes so what whatever he's a fucking man of taste is what he is <laughs> <laughs> anyway so yeah it's sourced from an old master uh which it means it still has some problems. It's not it's not a perfect transfer or anything, but it looks fine. Certainly, audio seems oh. fine. Uh, lossless track. There is an image gallery, original EPK, four minute stuff, a bunch of archival featurettes like that. Um, uh, let's see. There's a new video interview with. Uh, Kane Hodder, who was the stunt coordinator, you know Jason Voorhees, who talks mm -hmm. about his relationship with the director uh, Sean S. Cunningham. Uh, there's a new video interview with actors Greg Evigan and Nancy Everhard, which talk about what it was like to work on here called The Survivors. There's a new program called From the Deep with the special effects makeup designer Mark Showstrom, creature supervisor Greg Nicotero, legendary, the guy who kind of became sort of unquestionably the master of practical effects and monster work today. And creature artist Robert Kurtzman talk about how they created and did the monster. It's a big puppet, basically. Yeah, bad creature, my ass. It's a bad creature. I don't know what to tell you. It's just, I mean, they had, I'm sure they had, it's weird. I say I'm sure they had little budget, but they didn't. Apparently this is really well budgeted, but they spent it all on the, on the underwater station instead of making the monster look cool because it looks terrible. Which, it's a cool station. Yeah, it is a cool station. They spent a lot of money on it, making it look convincing and not cheap. And it does. It looks real, but I don't know. Anyway, isolated score. Uh, but with audio commentary by the composer, Harry Manfre Manfredini, big name, another thing they spent money on. There's audio, another audio commentary with the screenwriters, and there's another audio commentary with Sean S. Uh, Cunningham and the visual effects supervisor, James Isaac. 
and a reversible cover with vintage poster art. So they really did put together overall a pretty nice package for this piece of absolute garbage that I just have lost all respect for Aaron for liking as much as he does. But yeah, you know, you know what? <laughs> kind of like the Blu-ray.com reviewer. I have no shame about this. I love this movie and have always loved it. Well, like, I'm sure that my mom is going to listen to this podcast and be like, oh, my God, you're that admitting that. Because <laughs> she keeps going, you're not supposed to fucking tell people that we let you watch Cheech and Chong when you were 11. <laughs> well, she's probably going to send me a personal apology message. I'm sorry. I had no idea. I, you know, I would have thought he would have grown out of it. I don't. I'm really no. sorry. Can we delete this up part of the episode? I'm not gonna. He might look for a job at some point, so we don't want to. <laughs> oh, anyway, rounding out the end of our science fi- uh, fiction look this week is a minor classic that has since, with nostalgia, been elevated into a major classic, which is probably the best of the Star Wars ripoffs, The Last Starfighter in 1984, directed by Nick Castle, who I was really shocked. I didn't realize that he directed this, and people were like, who's Nick Castle? Well, first off, he co-wrote Escape from New York with John Carpenter, and he also was the original Michael Myers in Halloween. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) that guy? I did not know that. Really? You didn't? Okay. Yeah, I was like, yeah, he just recently reappeared as the character in the new Halloween when they show him kind of like we can kind of see him from behind into the side a little bit. That's Nick Castle. Okay. He he came back to do that. He also did The Boy Who Could Fly, Dennis the Menace, and Major Pain. Oh, I've seen almost all of those. (laughs) Well. This is uh, one of the very first films. It may have been the first. I'm not sure. But uh, right alongside Tron to have in a in a major cinematic release to use CGI for, you know, special effects, which it uses extensively. And which it looks terrible by today's standards. I mean, Tron at least is supposed to be inside a video game. So you're like, okay. It's inside a game. Of course, it doesn't look like real. It's not supposed to. This is supposed to be ships like flying in space. And consequently, it looks awful. I have to admit, <laughs> I, I was actually I'm not going to sit here and say it's good. It It's not. It's not. <laughs> but it's, it's a lot better than I imagined. Like, it's been probably a cool seven or eight years since I've actually watched this movie, despite the fact that like Deep Star Six. I watched this a lot when I was a kid. Um, I have very intense, fond memories of this movie. Had a deep, deep crush on his girlfriend in this movie. And a lot of my reoccurring nightmares also make sense watching this as an adult because the effects and the creature work in this movie are on point. There are some intense uh, sequences to watch as a kid in here. Well, tell, um, the, tell the brief version of the plot yeah, here. So, so short version of the plot, which you're going to notice some similarities to Ready Player One and a few others because... They ripped it off. Yeah, they ripped <laughs> it off. Uh, so basically, the main character, uh, he is... A smart but kind of lazy teen who is, he's Luke Skywalker. He can't wait to get out of town. Um, and when his chances keep falling apart, he gets sad one day and he plays an arcade game. And oh my God, he beats it. He beats the arcade game. Uh, the next day he gets contacted by Centauri, the alien salesman, who takes him away to basically... 
live out the experience of the game itself because it ends up that the game was dun, 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 a test and by being the first person in america to beat the game which as a geek you, you go oh bullshit i'm sorry i saw the game people beat that day of yeah day um, of. <laughs> but <laughs> but um he gets whisked away to be a starfighter in the fight against this empire run by the emperor's sniveling son uh who's coming in to kill everyone and generic bad guy in a giant fleet that's really one big ass ship well of course like you do it's a little scary when you get exposed to that kind of a situation so the main character waffles back and forth before long he is literally the last starfighter in the galaxy everyone else is dead and it's up to him and his navigator uh, the actual pilot of the ship to fight back and save the galaxy from the uh, giant fleet that is this one ship uh and it's <sighs> It's a really predictable movie. This is very much ripping off the 80s Spielberg uh, kind of saccharine, sweet kids horror adventure story um, with a sci-fi bend. The effects are are much better than I expected as long as you're not looking at the jet trails of the ships, <laughs> um, which are atrociously bad. But and, and I never really glommed on to the super secret weapon that this one special ship has which has always seemed a little bit silly. But you know what? This is a, it still manages to be a pretty fun adventure film. The A-plot is a rip-roaring, aliens everywhere, weird sci-fi teen coming out of his shell adventure story. And the B-plot involves his clone trying to... Which is the best part of the whole movie. Which is the best part of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to basically pretend to be him, not getting human sexuality, ruining all of his relationships on accident and fighting off uh, alien bounty hunters like it it's a fun movie the comedy works for the most part and if you can get past the dated effects like this works i watched it with my wife who i also watched a couple of other movies in this stack that she uh, she thought this was a lot better than any of the others she watched we had a blast with it I find this lightly entertaining. I still, upon rewatching it, feel the same way I did more or less when it came out. I was like, yeah, it's a, uh, it is entertaining. It's cute, but it's not mm-hmm. a film that made me go, oh, I want to collect stuff from it. No, I sure hope they make a sequel. And oh man, I wonder what else happened. I just don't think about that stuff. You know I, I, I go, I want to, I want a print of some artist doing a very pretty interpretation of that, like sign that they have in front of their mobile home mm-hmm. park. That's about all of the paraphernalia I could take though. I just, you know, I think it's partially because it sets up this whole like, oh, this is like uh, this huge thing and it's unbeatable odds. And then it's super fucking easy. You know, it's just like, oh, that was it. Well, shit, dude, I could have done that with my dad's shotgun. You know, it's it's one of those like, well, that never really felt like a threat at all. I was much more concerned with what's going on with the like robot clone that can take his head off back on Earth. Who's just and his relationship the not relationship with his girlfriend, you know, he keeps trying to put her off. He's like, Ooh, gross. She wants to press lips against mine. That's disgusting. He, he wants to, he, she tried to put her tongue in my ear. Yeah. Who does that? <laughs> That's funny stuff there. And I love Robert Preston, who I wish had been in it more as Centauri. Robert Preston, famous actor, best known for professor Harold Hill in the musical in 1957, the music man. But did you, one thing I didn't realize, I was like, where do I know that voice from? The guy who plays Grig, who's the co-pilot, the, the uh, navigator in the ship. That is the bad guy 
Daniel O'Hurley from Halloween 3 season of The Witch. He was the old man in RoboCop. What? He's Andrew Packard in Twin Peaks. He's one of those character actors. You know him. And you're like, oh, oh, my God, that is that guy. Holy so shit. My weird connection was clearly the creature designers who worked on the show have some correlation with Enemy Mind with Dennis Quaid. Yeah. Because that character looks exactly like the alien in Enemy Mind to a point yeah. that I have a hard time separating the two in my head because I saw them both around the same time. Yeah. And if you have seen both movies, they could not be more different. No, no. I, I, I mean... Maybe it's separated by centuries. Who knows? Because mankind has yet to discover space travel in the last Starfighter, but they have an enemy mind. So maybe their races end up becoming maybe. enemies. You don't know. You don't know. I will say I had a huge crush on Catherine Mary Stewart back in the day and the various movies she was in, including this one. Uh, yeah, she was she was totally that. that she, you know, I was more of a Marianne than a ginger guy, and she was like the Marianne type. And I was like, girl next door. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh this is from era which means they did a nice job putting this together knowing that this has a huge cult following certainly the whole generation of kids grew up with this as a major movie for them for me not like i said not as much but i did enjoy it uh this is been restored by Arrow, so it's a brand new transfer uh, scanned from the original 35 millimeter camera negative in 4k uh, and then graded and restored so it looks fantastic it is by far the best version that exists of this thing out here there's three different audio versions on this with a dts hd master audio 5.1 uh, master audio 4.1 and audio 2.0 which is cool and then there's a bunch of special features uh there's new stuff with a new interview with Catherine mary stewart there is uh composing the last starfighter which looks at, you know, obviously the composer here. Uh, there's writing The Last Starfighter interview with the author, Jonathan Betuel. There is uh, the special effects supervisor. Talk to him. There's a look with uh, sci-fi author Greg Baer, who talked about digital productions, which was the company that did the film CGI. There's a, a look at the arcade game that never happened. Because in the obviously the movie centers around a fictional arcade game, and there was supposed to be this huge Atari release of the official Last Starfighter arcade game, and it was more or less, according to rumor and urban legend, completed but kind of lost, except for paper notes. So this guy ended up basically building his own based on what notes and stuff there were still that he had to detective work to discover. Uh, and so he made a official last Starfighter game all these years later. Anyway, that's kind of a cool document. Uh, there's archival feature right on here. That's about 24 minutes long. There's another one that's about 32 minutes long and image galleries, trailers, three different audio commentaries, a nice insert booklet, uh, with brand new commission art artwork by Matt Ferguson, a folded poster and a reversible sleeve. This is a great package. If you love this movie, if you know someone who loves this movie, this is a Christmas present that they will be super fucking happy to get. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron's like wink, <laughs> honey, mom, uh, everyone buy this for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> so for Christmas this year, Aaron got 30 copies of the last time. <laughs> Well, you didn't get a chance to watch this. I got sent this out of the blue. I didn't even ask for it. And that's fine. Time Warner uh, sometimes, or Time Life, puts together these sets that are usually collections of old TV shows. Like they sent me the, this giant box set of the Carol Burnett show way back when. I was more than happy to get it. Right? Wasn't on my radar. But hey, showed up random. I'm like, I like the Carol Burnett show. I'm glad to have it. They're not. Their sets tend not to be 
dynamically upgraded. I mean, most of the stuff was all filmed on video, so it looks like shit. It would cost a lot of money to really upgrade it properly, and ain't nobody doing that, right? So <laughs> this new set is called Saturday Night Live, The Early Years. Now, many, many years ago, in DVD, I somebody, I assume the parent company, decided they were going to start putting out season-by-season season Saturday Night Live sets. I yeah. still have I remember one. that. And they're bricks. I mean, they're like fucking that big right it's every episode tons of bonus features you know fixed up and everything you're like wow and then i start watching that first season i'm like "Ooh, this is a mixed bag to be okay, sure yeah. it's Thank like you. I'm, I'm glad you had the same experience because i did the same thing i was yeah. like okay like, yeah some of this is funny <laughs> yeah you're like oh occasionally it's kind of funny mostly the stuff you've seen before because like the classic sketches get brought out again and again and again but there's some good stuff on it i'm like man i don't think this show needs a season by season release and sure enough i think they got as far as season three before they stopped doing it so this set the idea is well we went to the first five seasons and we just picked out the most successful episodes and just put those in here so it's 12 disc dvd set with uh i believe it's i want to say it's 33 episodes here which is you know, an impressive collection of stuff to have that's really not available almost anywhere else. It's This isn't streaming anywhere. So, like, okay, this is a cool little archive of things to get, which has, you know, Chevy Chase just in the first season, then Bill Murray replaced him in season two, but then you have Dan Aykroyd, Garrett Morris, Gilda Radner, Jane Curtin, Lorraine Newman, uh, with people like uh, George Carlin, Steve Martin, uh, Madeline Kahn, Joe Cocker, uh, just a, a, a ton of major name guest hosts, Buck Henry, Elliot Gould, Eric Idle, Candace Bergen, Charles Grodin, Robert Klein, Fred Willard, Carrie Fisher, tons of musical guests on here, Par Patty Smith, Carly Simon, Joe Cocker, The Band, Paul Simon, Santana, Frank Zappa, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, Randy Newman, Van Morrison, Blondie, and more. There's rare original footage, including screen tests and interviews. There's a 28-page collector's book, and there is a free bonus DVD with three episodes, including Chevy Chase's return to Saturday Night Live many, many, many years later with Billy Joel, plus the 100th episode. So really, despite the fact they didn't spend a lot of time, like I said, I mean, it doesn't look like this is a VHS copy with like lines tracking and shit or anything like that. It's about as good as you're going to get on a DVD with with the minimum amount of work done to fix it up. It, it's fine. But it's still kind of a nice thing to have in your collection. Uh, we watched like the first couple episodes and I was like, there's a lot of funny shit in here. I don't remember at all. And I like that. It's not just like, okay, it's, but it's every episode. Damn. It's like, no, they just picked the ones that people said, okay, these are the ones that work the best for sure. Consistently. Even so, when it gets to the news stuff, you're like, I don't know half of what they're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Just, yeah. Sure. That's sure. funny. That's fine. All right, we move on to the Western section of the show, and we're going to start off, well, I say Western section, I might as well just say the Clint Eastwood section, because yeah. all three of these films we're talking about next are being put out by Kino Lober. They're all Clint Eastwood Westerns, and we're going to talk about them in ascending order of as they get better. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they're all three holes in my filmography, so I was yeah. very grateful to get this set. And all three are well worth watching. Like, yeah. they tend to be films like, I mean, if you've seen Clint Eastwood, you've seen the Sergio Leone classic trilogy. You know, you've probably seen Pale Rider. You, you, mm -hmm. You've seen Unforgiven. What's the other American uh Oh, The Outlaw Jesse Wales, right? Those are the, the legendary ones. Well, these are kind of like the next tier 
like these are like right below all those like oh you like those you should watch these too they're also really good they're maybe not as good as those but they're pretty fucking good as well and we start off with joe kid this came out in 1972 it was written by elmore leonard and it was directed by john sturgis now sturgis was very famous for doing films like Bad Day at Black Rock, or Gunfight at the OK Corral, or The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, Ice Station Zebra. And apparently he wasn't thrilled about making this particular movie. <laughs> and famously, much discussion has been made about, you can kind of tell he wasn't completely thrilled about this particular one. I don't know what the reason is per se. I mean, it's still, it's a decent screenplay. One of the problems is Eastwood himself who is playing another, you know, quiet, badass gunfighter here. He's a former bounty hunter. He's in jail because he was hunting on Indian land. Uh, John Saxon is a, a bandito. He played Mexicans a lot back then. Who's organizing a pe peasant result against local land owners. A wealthy landowner, Robert Duvall, is setting out to capture him. And he's like, hey, uh, Joe Kidd, uh, you're kind of a badass. You know, a little bit of a, a random, but sure, you want to come join us? And uh, he ends up deciding to go with them, but it seems more like a, I mean, based on later events, like, oh, okay, I guess it's just to keep an eye on them more than anything else. That's where the real confusion lies is with Eastwood's character, who we're never really sure what the fuck he wants or what he's thinking or why he does what he does. Ultimately, he's like, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to hook up with these assholes. I'm going to hang with the Mexican guys, at least until that's inconvenient. It's all right. There's some really cool action in here for sure. Um yeah, it's it's fine. It's just not plot wise <laughs> one of the most memorable films. But man, it's got a great ending with a train that drives into a building. Like that's kind of cool. Yeah, it, it's the fun, mindless action movie of the set. I think it's noteworthy for the fact that it is kind of explicitly on the side of the minority figures. You know, like because there isn't really a point where Clint Eastwood's Clint Eastwood is ever really on board with Robert Duvall. He's mm -hmm. always like the government is always a dick, which was a fun change of pace, at least from the older Westerns I've seen. But yeah, this one doesn't have the standout moments and characters that the other two Clint Eastwoods have. It it's, definitely has some great action point. for sure. And, and great cinematography. And it was fun, I'll admit, watching John Saxon as the Mexican bandito, because this was one of two things that I saw John Saxon play a Mexican bandito in within a 48-hour period, because I started watching Kung Fu at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it was really weird to see how widespread John Saxon was at the time. It's true. He was in a lot of stuff. He's the dad in Nightmare on Elm Street. I know. <laughs> that made you very amused. <laughs> it did. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy him in the Elm Street series. Man, I, it feels like this should be like... What what is it? Uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever it is. Six degrees of Saxon. Yeah, right. Seems like it'd be mo even more choices if you're talking about movies from back then. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, this is fine. There's an interview with Don Stroud, who's the actor in here. He talks about being involved with this, talking, being with, hanging out with Clint Eastwood. Information about the production. It's only about ten minutes. Other than that, it's just like trailers, TV spots, image galleries. There is a, but there is an audio commentary by director Alex Cox that alone makes me want to watch this again because Cox is a total weirdo, but he's kind of a genius. He did like Repo Man and Straight to Hell and a bunch of really interesting movies and kind of curious to see because he's always been deeply influenced by the Western aesthetic. I'm really interested to see what he has to say about this. But let's move on to the next one, which like I said, let's go a step up in quality yep. from Joe Kidd. And that's 
the unfortunately titled Two Mules for Sister Sarah. It's not a, it's not a good <laughs> no, it's title. It's not a good title. No. <laughs> this came out in 1970. It was directed by Don Siegel, who made a number of really great movies with Clint Eastwood. They worked together on, oh, geez, Escape from Alcatraz, Dirty Harry, a bunch there of shit. Uh, and he also did Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But this is set during the French intervention in Mexico, like 1860s. Uh, it was supposed to be the first in a association between Universal and Pictures and a Mexican production company. I guess that didn't end up happening. But uh, right after this, Siegel and Eastwood went on to do The Beguiled and then Dirty Harry immediately. Immediately after, so obviously they got along. But it's a he's an American, American mercenary, and he's just kind of fucking around when he meets this nun played by the, back then, just unbelievably delightful Shirley MacLaine. She was like one of the like most delightful actresses alive. If you've never seen The Apartment, oh my God, watch The Apartment. Holy shit, you'll know what I'm talking about. But here she's kind of like that. She's this nun, Sister Sarah. She stops, stops her from being raped by a group of, of bandits. And she's like, oh, I'm trying to raise money to assist these Mexican revolutionaries who are fighting the evil French. Very rarely see the evil French unless you're in France. But anyway. It was refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> so he kind of, okay, I'm going to help her. Of course, I'm going to help her. And as it goes along, he finds himself surprised that he really kind of likes her. I mean, she's kind of a badass. She drinks whiskey and smokes cigars. And, you know, as a viewer, you start to suspect something's up with this nun, man. <laughs> this is not, this is not your run of the. So, wait she, a minute, you you're a cool nun. Yeah. Nuns are supposed to be cool. She ain't none of the mill, you know? <laughs> but yeah, the, I mean, and obviously there is, but nothing nefarious. This is a really cute movie. That's fun. Has some good action. It's most memorable stuff. Isn't the plot per se, but it's the character interaction between the two leads, which are just great together. Like surely like, Oh, I'm so full of life and I'm happy. And I don't understand why you're being a stick in the mud and Clint Eastwood being a stick in the mud. And like, they just well, play perfectly off each other. It's another one of those examples of the old grizzled veteran or skilled guy having to like, fine, I'll help you with your mission of whatever. And I guess I'm going to care about it now. Uh, <laughs> which like it, it's a trope. We've seen it done a hundred times before, but it's almost always a fun trope. It's good to see it done. Yeah, no, agreed. And and like I said, it works. This is entertaining. Yeah. It moves quickly. It's got la real laughs in it. It's got one of the greatest Ennio Morricone soundtracks. Like, this is considered in his top five. Yeah, if you've watched any of the Quentin Tarantino westerns, you've, you've heard the soundtrack you, to you've this heard movie. This. Yes, you have. <laughs> yes, you have. But yeah, and it's a really the best, you know, release yet of, of either one of these two movies so far, uh, that, that they put out on, you know, it's Blu-ray, but it's from a 4k master and there's two cuts. There's an international cut, which is longer. There's and a domestic cut, which is shorter. There's a poster and image gallery. There's a very old eight minute interview with like a 20 something Clint Eastwood, uh, which is kind of fascinating. There's a new commentary once again by Alex Cox. Yeah. So it's, it's, Got some cool stuff, but it's still kind of a basic set. Like I I'm always kind of frustrated because I'm like, there is a set of the Sergio Leone Eastwood films, and I'm kind of like, somebody needs to put a set of all the films that aren't those in one set, and then but that are still great, and then just go overboard with like stuff. And is can no one get Eastwood to come in and do featurettes on this shit? I mean, come on, this stuff major you into who you are, especially this next one which was the third and best of the and last of the films we're talking about this week in, in the Western series. This is 1973's High Plains Drifter, which was directed 
by Clint Eastwood and was definitely one of the first movies that made people turn their heads and look at him and go, God damn, this guy actually knows how to direct a movie. In some ways, for me, this is the defining Clint Eastwood film. Yeah, this is where the character from Preacher, the Saint of All Killers, came from. He didn't come from the Leone films. He came from this evolving of the man with no name character as Clint Eastwood plays a guy who is never given a name, but it's hinted at who he might be or what he might be as he runs and he rides into the small isolated mining town in California in the old West and kills some people, rapes a local, which is like Jesus Christ fucking movie. <laughs> which it's, it's worth watching that and listening to the commentary part because it gets to that. And it was the, the person on the commentary who might be Alex Cox just kind of goes, yeah, like this is something that used to happen in movies like this. You would have a hero just grab a woman and take advantage of her. And, and I'm going to go ahead and say that it's probably a good thing that this doesn't happen anymore in movies. (laughs) (laughs) It's Alex Cox. It is. But yeah, it's one of those, you have to take it in the context of the film at the time when it was made and that like, Oh, but she was a bad person, whatever. Anyway. So, so like, the sheriff goes, look, there's a problem. These guys who were in town, uh, they murdered the this guy here who was here before, and we are we got we got them put in jail for it. But now they're getting out of jail, and we know they're coming here, and we want to pay you to stop them. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And like, we will literally give you anything you want as much as you want, anything you want. So he's like, Oh really? So he just starts going around asking for everything. And they're after a while, like, are we sure we didn't make a deal with the devil here? And (laughs) no, this one is not overtly supernatural, but there's no question. And even Eastwood has said, no, the intent was decidedly, to give the impression that he was an avenging spirit from hell. So like, like you told me that before I watched this movie and I seemingly forgot that entirely. And like, <laughs> even though the movie literally begins with him fading into existence in the first shot of the movie, like I was uh-huh. watching this and like live messaging you being like, you know, the fact that he murders like four people and rapes a woman in the first 10 minutes of this movie makes it, <laughs> I'm a little leery about where this is going and you get into it and you start to realize that he is very clearly going, you know what? I We're not going to tell you why necessarily I'm doing these things, but I'm going to destroy you all. Like, like <laughs> this isn't a scene. This isn't the kind of movie where the, the wandering hero comes in and tries to save the little people. Uh, like, I think there might be one person who escapes his wrath in the entire movie and everyone else. He's like, no, nah, y'all fuckers are dead and I'm going to destroy everything you have to live for. And I'm going to salt the earth and have fun. Uh, yeah, but it really works. Clint Eastwood does a good job of directing this in a way that makes it feel very lived in. It's a non-traditional Western town. It's in more of the plains. It's on the edge of a lake, which you don't get to see as often. And because it's an older film, they just built a town on the side of the lake. And so like, yeah. it's a real Western town that they're in. And uh, that gives it an authenticity that you don't always see in movies of this era like it never feels like a set no 
not at all. I mean, it was like he was supposed to film it on the set, but he had enough swing at that point. He's like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm just going to build it. I need the money. Give me the money. And like, well, Clint, we can't. He just stood there like, yeah, no, Clint, but we can't put a pot. And he just stood there like, like, all right, Clint, here's the money. He's like, yeah, that's what I thought. Thank you. Like, like, I'll be <laughs> honest, uh, this one and the two mules for Sister Sarah, it's not often that I, I like go out of my way to add a movie to my collection, but both of those I'm adding. I yeah. thoroughly enjoy the hell out of this. The action is interesting. It's well shot. It's surprisingly bloody yeah. uh, for a movie of this era. Like The other two are very much PG movies. I didn't actually look at the rating on this. It would not surprise me if this were an R. There, There's a decent amount of rape and blood and death um and it's filled with small like oh wait that guy kind of actors in it too where like a, a bunch of the cast from deadwood ends up in this yeah no uh, there's a lot of familiar faces to be sure uh you'll be watching this going oh look look i know that guy where do i know him from there's a lot of that as you watch this movie it's terrific this is yeah, the one of the movie. three that I would actually say, okay, this one is probably belongs on the list with all the other classic Eastwoods. And if you haven't ever seen it, man, what are you thinking? Get out there. And there's multiple copies of High Plains Drifter floating around. This isn't even the first Blu-ray that's been produced of it, although it is arguably the best version. It's still struck from the same master that the, the 40th anniversary edition was struck from, but it's... It, arguably a little bit better uh the audios two audio tracks 2.0 and 5.1 and then there's a lot of special features here actually there's radio spots image galleries uh two archival episodes of trailers from hell that talk about it one with edgar wright and one with josh olson there is a vintage feature called a man named eastwood there's a brand new video interview with actor William O'Connell, who plays the barber in the town, who talks about his job, his life in the film business, what it was like working with Clint Eastwood on this film. Uh, that was, This is exclusive to this, 17 Minutes. There's a brand new video interview with actor Mitchell Ryan, who talks about his first meeting with Clint Eastwood and going out to the High Sierras where they shot it. And then there's Marianna Hill, a brand new video interview with this actress who talks about her wild character from here and dealing with Clint Eastwood. There's a new audio commentary, as you pointed out, once again from Alex Cox, a reversible cover with vintage poster art. And uh, yeah, this is a solid fucking home release that I really hope that everybody is interested in. Now comes the big question. Aaron, what is going to be our pick of the week this week? You know, I, I want to be a dick and say Deep Star Six, um, no. but <laughs> I would I would over uh, <laughs> I would place my veto card. And be like, veto. Um, honestly, it's it's High Plains Drifter. That was the yeah. one that kind of came out of left field for me. Agreed. I really enjoyed that movie, and the set is very robust. What fascinates me is that it's the second movie Clint Eastwood directed. So, like, I I've seen movies he's directed mainly as an adult. Um, like movies that have come out in the last 15 years that he's made. I really haven't seen any of his original first few movies. And it kind of blew me away, the fact that he hit the ground running as quickly as he did with this. No, they're w well worth watching. His history as a filmmaker is actually quite impressive. Uh, his, even right from the early stuff, If you feel, like, I forget that. What was the name of his first movie? I'm, so, I do not know. Ah, it's something about a phone call or something. I can't remember, but... um. Fuck, it's not what you'd expect. It's kind of an erotic thriller, but it's really good. Is it cellular? <laughs> no. Have you have you ever seen uh, The Outlaw Josie Wales or Pale Rider? No. I, I'm, I'm missing out on most of his early filmography. They're incredible. 
They're so great. You will love them just like you love this movie. They're so good. So watch those. Anyway, that's our pick of the week. This has been Digital Noise. That has been Aaron Woodle, Papa Bear. I thought we were just going to stick with the Papa Bear for the name, but I guess you're going to No, I'm going to change shit up. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. (laughs) Eventually. Next time I might even think about a name. Once you think of a name. That's fair. Totally fair.